Hi, everybody. I'm so grateful to finally be bringing you this episode with Jane Phillips. You'll hear at the end of the episode, Shane and I start talking about Christmas lights, and that will give you some sense of how slow the production currently is on Grief is My Side Hustle. So apologies to Shane on the turnaround for these episodes. But I am very grateful and excited for the audience to be hearing this episode, meeting Shane, listening to his really tender story of loss and how he took his experiences and I would say his incredible intelligence and turned that into resources that are available for all of us now. This is a episode that is chock full of concrete support and I am delighted to be able to bring it to you. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am so delighted today to be sitting down with Shane Phillips. Shane reached out to me to let me know about his work, and I immediately said, how can I get you on the podcast? What do I need to do? So this is a very thrilling Wednesday for me, and I've been looking forward to this all day. Shane, thank you so much for being here. Well, Megan, I'm so glad to be here and really appreciate the work that you're doing in the grief care community, and hopefully I can be additive today. Well, what I'd love for you to do and what I always ask is, can you just take us into how you come into the world of grief and loss? Sure. So I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and in 1989, I was 16 years old. My parents had just sent me to Germany to be an exchange student, and I kind of reluctantly actually went. I was It was in between my sophomore and junior year of high school. And so I I departed July 5th, 1989 for Germany. I had a wonderful host family. I actually went out three weeks early so that I could vacation with my host family around Europe. So we drove through Germany and Italy, ended up on the island of Corsica, and they had a sailboat there. And Mm. that's really where my story begins. So on the morning of August 2nd, 1989, some French policemen came to our boat. That, that we had been sailing around on, and they were looking for Jean-Philippe, which I guess is the, the French version of Shane Phillips. Yeah, and they had a message for me, and that was to call home, and, and that's all the message said. And so I went into the Harbor Police's office, and in the men's room is where they had the payphone, and my dad had given me a, an AT&T calling card for those that. of us older listeners. Yeah. And so I first tried to call my parents at home and I didn't get an answer. And then my parents owned a small software company. I called their office, no answer. Uh, So I started to get fairly concerned. I called one of my good friends from high school, Elvis Oxley. I called his house and his mom answered. And I said, Mrs. Oxley, I have this message to call home, but I can't get a hold of anybody. You know, what's going on? And she said, you really need to talk to somebody in your immediate family. So now I'm in panic mode and it's 9 a.m. in in Europe and like 4 or 5 a.m. in D.C. and, and 3 a.m. in Denver, where my grandparents lived. And so I called my grandmother and She picked up the phone and she said, you don't know yet, do you? And I said, no, Grandma, I don't know what's going on. And she said, your mommy and daddy and sister were killed in a plane crash. And I can still so vividly see where I was almost 34 years ago when this happened. 
And so my life changed dramatically from that, that point forward. So here I was 16 years old. I was in this dirty bathroom in a police station in Corsica and I got this life-changing news. And so I went out to my host family, to Klaus and Nicole, and, and I said, I've got to go home. And I tried to explain to them what happened. And of course, their jaws just dropped too. So uh, amazingly, Klaus flew with me from Corsica back to Frankfurt to Washington, D.C. He doesn't speak any English. And this is back in the days when you could still smoke on airplanes and he <laughs> pain smoked unfiltered cigarettes. But the, the heart that he had to make sure that I got home was amazing. And then ultimately he came to Denver where my family was buried. So I went from <clears throat> as a 16-year-old on the beaches of Corsica on a Sunday to the following Saturday burying my family. One of the things that I did and I, I credit this to my parents in the way that they raised my sister and I, but I wrote my parents a letter mm-hmm. on that plane ride back from Europe, and I made them certain promises mm-hmm. that included that I would never let their passing be an excuse for not forging ahead in my life as they had raised me. And every once in a while, I break out that letter and read it and make mm-hmm. sure that I'm still on track for the promises that I made to them. But it was a really difficult time, my last two years of high school. I ended up inheriting their business, our house. They didn't have any life insurance that I was aware of. And I had to figure all this stuff out. And thankfully, I ended up living with my neighbors who were two doors down. I kind of knew them, mostly because I took care of their horses and dogs when they would go on vacation. But the husband, Phil Beeson, was a corporate attorney in McLean, Virginia, where we lived. And his wife, Jory, was a child advocate for Fairfax County. And so I kind of had, you know, a built-in legal team that was able to, A, help me get emancipated, B, figure out, you know, what do we do with the business and all the assets and, and most importantly, the debt. And so I spent my last two years of high school just kind of in a gray, you know, cloud. I got gentlemen seized my junior year, which basically meant I failed, but they passed me because they felt bad for me. Rebounded a little bit my senior year and then decided that I really needed to be closer to family. And the majority of my family was in Colorado. So the day after I graduated from high school, loaded up a U-Haul and moved back to Denver, got accepted at the University of Denver, where I started studying business and marketing. So that that's really my personal story of how how I even got interested in the work that I do today. God, there's a lot. I mean, that story as a as a 48 year old woman, that story is like, you know, sits at the bottom of my stomach. Right. Like I have three kids. My youngest, my oldest is 14. And the idea that she, in a couple of years, might inherit a business and be expected to care for this home is just, you know, you can concretize it in this way, right? Where as an adult looking at this, it it's it's too much to even like wrap your head around. But the 
the part that touches me so deeply is that letter you're talking about writing on the plane that, you know, I, I talk to grievers all day long. And one of the things that I'm so aware of is that humans bear the unbearable all the time. And that what they hear is like, I never could have survived that. I'm sure you've heard that you're, you lose your entire family in a phone call in a remote area, literally on a boat. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's like something out of a movie and the, the director would say it's too much. It's, you know, that's too much of a plot that for people to believe. And yet it's your real life. And this story of you grasping for the, the life in the future, you know, this terrible thing has befallen you and, and your personhood, your humanhood is to let your parents know that you intend to be okay. And I just think that the resilience and the your story that is a unique story, but it's not it's not unique in the in the existence of people in the worst moments of their lives saying, feeling, doing something that already indicates their intention to survive, something that sounds impossible. You know, I, I really think the inspiration for me in writing that letter was a conversation I had had with my dad maybe two years prior. My my aunt had come out to visit. It was my aunt and my grandparents. And I, you know, the day before they left, I said, oh, well, we're going to all be crying at the airport tomorrow when you guys leave because we hadn't seen them for many years since we moved from Denver to D.C., and my dad stopped me and he said, no, you won't be crying at the airport. He said, Shane, if I had 10 minutes left on this earth with you, I would tell you everything I know that would help you with your future. And so that's the type of stuff that was kind of embedded in both my sister and I as kids. And I really credit that more than my own pretty or lack of maturity for writing that. But I also think that you know, we were a very expressive, loving family. And I think I just needed one more connection point. I'd actually talked to all three of them the Thursday prior to their death on the Sunday, being that my parents were tech people. We actually had car phones in 1989. Amazing. And I had used my calling card when I got someplace. And my, I called my parents' office and my mom patched my dad in on his his mobile That's phone. very tech savvy. Yeah, for, for that time period. And then got a hold of my sister at home. And that was really the last time that I talked to them. But I think that that letter was my kind of goodbye for, from the sense of I needed one more connection point. And, and I would, you know, just as a sidebar, and you're, you're the therapist here, so you tell me if I'm wrong, but I find it so powerful as I'm helping people in my lay grief ministry just encouraging them to write thoughts right to their to their loved one or loved ones because it can be cathartic there's a lot that we know about taking an impossible story and writing it over and over again you know there's some aspect of that when you talk about it which can be re-traumatizing it can activate your system when you talk it out but when you write it out it's like your your brain trusts that you have recorded the details. And so it doesn't have to hold the narrative so tightly 
to keep you aware of this terrible thing that has befallen you. It's it sort of trusts a cons and and when I say write it out, the the science is about writing it out by hand. But I do also think that people have to slow down in a certain way to find the words that feel true to express the feelings. And I think, you know, I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but emotions are these like electrical currents that run through our body and our feelings are kind of our interpretations of our emotions, like yes. our conscious interpretation. And there is something, I have a grief writing workshop that I offer on my platform that's free and people can join and do the prompts anytime they want, but it really is exactly what you're describing, which is an opportunity to sort of write through some of the pain and maybe leave some of the pain on the paper and maybe come away with insights or understanding that are difficult to get without kind of that, that way of pausing about it. And I mean, you said something important, which is you open it up every once in a while. And I think, again, one of the things about grief is that it's a lifelong experience. Right. And so, you know, we do look back at ourselves, like I imagine as a grown adult and a parent and a business person to open a page that was written by a bereaved 16 year old evokes things in you. I think writers would tell you that it can. And there are lots of other things, lots of other mechanisms that people also use music and dance and cooking and exercise that also do that. Writing just happens to leave us with a, you know, a product and a legacy that we can come back to, which is, you know, I think pretty powerful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, when we'll get into my book in, in, in a little bit, but when I wrote the introduction to the book, I wanted the reader and now the viewer, if they use the online course, to really connect with the fact that I'm not just some guy saying, hey, this is what you should do, but hey, I've lived this. And I had to figure out how to sell a business and what to do with a house. I mean, it was a real thing for me. And so the first five or six pages of my book and the intro video on my course, I tell my story. And I was just thinking back as you were explaining kind of the more clinical side of it, that when I wrote that first six pages, that probably took me two weeks. Yeah. And it was my story, but I kept going back and kind of not reliving in a bad way, but just almost trying to kind of savor everything that was around me before it happened and then after it happened. Yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's a powerful personal example of really what grief process can look like. We don't get to just choose when and how we grieve. It's sort of like, you know, grief shows up and then we have to attend to it. And I, I had a similar experience. There's a chapter in my memoir, which I just couldn't write. And my editor's like, well, th we're missing a whole chunk. And I'm like, well, I can't write it. For other people who aren't going to write a book or for other people who are at the early stages or doing it in these titrated patches, it's really powerful to open someone's story and hear it and go, oh my God, I get that. Anytime I ask someone, why do you do what you do? And I imagine your answer would be the same is I just wish someone, I wish this had existed for me at the time when I needed it. So I'm trying to produce it for other people. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. The other thing that I tell folks is every time I'm able to help a family, a widow, a widower, somebody that has lost a parent, someone that's lost a child, every time, whether it's 
through Heartlight or at church or just, you know, through my book or my course, I feel like I heal like one more millimeter. That That is edifying to be able to say, okay, I took something that was really horrible. I'm helping other people and it helps me heal too. Yeah. I mean, that's like the, the definition, the, the clinical definition of traumatic growth, which I know drives some people crazy. Oh, you have to grow and get something beautiful out of your trauma. No one is saying that's something that you have to do, but right. when you experience it, and I have some chills while I'm saying this, when you experience it, it feels holy. So I think that's such a beautiful definition and just reminding people that that terrible, terrible thing doesn't just stay terrible. Can you keep going with your narrative for us? You know, you get to college, you get to Denver, but I know that there's so much more. It's not like, and then your grief story is over. I know that it, that it continues to grow. Will you tell us more about where you go from there? Sure. So got to Denver, started at the University of Denver. i went through Greek pledging. I got into a fraternity, Kappa Sigma. And then I realized it costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And it, it was the first time in my life where, I shouldn't say first, but first big moment where I had to make a business deal. And so I went to the the officers and the housing corporation of the fraternity and I said, I can't afford to be here. But what I can do is the dishes every night. I can clean all the bathrooms and take that off the plate of the other members or the paid professionals that would come in to do that. And so I lived at my fraternity for the better part of three years and really learned how to work hard to pay for myself there. After I graduated from college, my grandmother was not doing well and she had muscular dystrophy and she needed help. And so I moved into her basement and then did all the grocery shopping and cleaning and lawn mowing, et cetera. And one day, and I should preface this with the house that my grandparents lived in, they purchased from my parents when we moved to Washington, DC. So that house had been in our family since the early seventies. And one day I got a phone call on my grandma's phone. I answered it and it was a New York life insurance company and they were looking for my dad. And I said, well, he's been deceased for six years, whatever it had been at that time. And I said, if you could please take us off your marketing list, I would appreciate it. So I hung up and maybe 15 minutes later, they called back and they said, your dad had a life insurance policy with us. Holy crap. Yeah. And you want to know something? It was almost to the penny of what I owed on my student loans. Are you kidding me? I'm not. And so had I received that you know, pre-college, I would have blown that money for sure. (laughs) But the fact that I had gone through school and had gained a little bit of maturity, I was able to pay off. I had kind of half loans, half grants and pay off the the bulk of those. So that was a huge blessing as was the time. I know I'm going to get DMs from readers if I don't ask this question from listeners. Did you, did that feel like an otherworldly hand from the other side? Yeah. You know, your dad being there. I mean, that those are the things that people are always craving is trusting that there is still some presence. And I don't know how you wouldn't have felt like that was your dad on the phone calling you to let you know he's taking care of you. Yeah. I was not raised with any religion. Mm-hmm. And then about a year after they passed away, I accepted Christ at a young life camp in Maryland. Wow. And so, um, when this happened, I really felt like it was divinely inspired. 
that the Lord knew that if I had got that money when I was 16, it would have gone into a sports car and not an education. Ah. And so, yeah, I definitely felt like there was something larger driving the time that that was received. Was the exploration and connection to religion, do you think that was also related to your parents' death? I'm always interested in this. I'm always interested in the idea of like, what sort of things do people go seeking Mm -hmm. to fill the hole? What sort of things come undone? And there's a lot of conversation around spirituality. Some people's spirituality comes completely undone by tragedy. What kind of a God would let a 16-year-old lose all three of his family? And for other people, what's the closest they ever felt to feeling held? Really curious about a 16-year-old boy who suddenly without all the backstops of parental support. So Mm -hmm. if you don't mind just sort of answering that question, I'm just curious about what that, how that came into your life at that time. So I'll go back to when my parents were alive. My dad fought in Vietnam, 68 to 69. He was in the Marine Corps. He was wounded. He and my mom were both raised in a pretty strict Christian household. And when he came back from Vietnam, he said there could be no God that would let happen what I saw happen there. And so we didn't go to church. Yep. Uh, my sister and I, after we'd moved to DC, my sister and I had come back to Denver for a summer and stayed with my grandparents and they still went to Sunday morning church and then gospel meeting on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And my sister and I really enjoyed going to like the Sunday night gospel meetings where you're learning, you know, like Old Testament stories yeah, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yeah. And so we called our parents one day and we're like, oh, we learned all of this stuff at, at gospel meeting. And my dad sent a very stern letter to my grandparents and said, don't ever take them to church again. Mm. And so I, I had a thirst for it when I was yeah. a little kid. And I understand now, having read some things that my dad wrote about his experiences in Vietnam and some of the atrocities that he saw, sure. why he felt the way he did. So sure. he was the person that responded to that trauma with, there can't be a God. Yep. But it kind of welled up in me after they passed away. And Phil and Jory, who I moved in with, were both believers. They never pushed it on me. Yeah. But I discovered Young Life in high school. Mm. And at first I felt kind of a belonging. But then once I understood, you know, the Gospels and like really intellectually understood, it spoke to me. Mm. And um and so I, I gravitated towards that, but it wasn't an immediate thing. It was a year or two after, after they passed away. And I wasn't necessarily looking for it. I think it found me. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I talk to people about when they're like, what am I supposed to do to grieve is, and sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating. It's an intuitive process and it's not about feeling bad. It's about moving energy through your body so that you don't have to carry it as only the hard and the heavy, right? Right. I think spirituality and religion for people, there's some religions where all anyone ever feels is heavy and bad about themselves, but, but it is an interesting thing to hear. There's, I wouldn't be able to talk my daughter into music that she didn't want to listen to, right? Like she, I can't influence her at 14 
to do things that are not true to her. I can't, you know, to her deep soul, I can get her to obey me (laughs) and I could get her to go to a church if I wanted to, but that's not the same as her yearning for and finding a spiritual connection to something. I'm grateful to you for answering that because it's such an interesting, again, intuitive way that your, your humanness whether it was out of an understanding that it was around grief or not, your system needed that internal connection to something larger than you. And it sounds as though it was an important part of your life. It was, I mean, and it became an important part of my life. It's ultimately how I met my wife. So she was a cradle Catholic and I was going to a non-denominational church here in Denver and yeah. back in the Gen X days, you know, they had like a six thirty kind of rock and roll. Oh, service. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was a greeter for that service. And she randomly came on her own and she's much more of an introvert mm-hmm. to my being an extrovert. And I saw her and I was like, Oh, who's that? And uh, so we, we met at that church yeah. and got yeah. engaged five months later. Oh my gosh. And then married the following August. And that was in 2000. Well, we met in 99. So in 2000. And then our first son, Andrew, was born in 2001 before our first anniversary. Oh, my God. And around that time, it was probably, it was about 2002, 2003. I read the book, The Purpose Driven Life. And, you know, that first chapter is your life is not about you. And the sooner you figure out what your purpose is in this world, the happier you'll be. And so I had really thought about it. And I thought, would there be a way to get every kid in Denver free grief counseling? It was just like my BHAG, my big, hairy, audacious goal. And I'm thinking of this simultaneously with while growing my career. So I, I started out in the mortgage business, built a practice, built a business, sold that to a bank. All along the way, I'm gaining professional experience in banking and finance. But I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I went and raised some money and started childgrief.org. The official name was the Children's Grief Education Association. Very long title. But basically what we did was we took, I had a clinician with her PhD And we went to the area graduate schools at the University of Denver and Colorado Christian and other schools. And we went to the folks that were the master's degree candidates that had to do their supervised hours of counseling. And so Mary supervised them. And then that's the way we were able to provide free grief counseling. That's incredible. I mean, what what an innovative, incredibly smart way to meet every, you know, grievers needs and those students needs so that they have yeah. the supervision that they need and what an incredible offering. I mean, that's such a, that's such a, that's a, that's a big offering. It was, it was, uh, it was great while it lasted. So we served about 400 kids from 2003 to 2010. I kind of hit a wall in terms of, you know, my family was growing by 2010, I had five kids. My say, career you're, was you're five now, right? It's, yeah. Five. That's a lot. I'm yeah. one of six. So like, that's a lot. Yeah. So 20, 21, 19, 18, 15, and almost 12 now, but I kind of hit a wall where running the nonprofit and also growing my career, I transitioned out of the 
the mortgage business went into private banking and yeah. then on to commercial banking. And I did my graduate banking school at Wharton. So I had a lot of stuff going on. And I just, I, I felt like, okay, every nonprofit leader has a life in their, their leadership time. It's probably time for me to hand this over. And kind of simultaneously with the birth of my youngest son, and then my two of my cousins who are like my brothers, we all had sons within 45 days of each other. Oh my God. But our oldest, oldest cousin brother, his 15 year old son took his life in between when all the three little boys were born right around Christmas. And so it kind of fell to me to help figure out how do you do a funeral at Christmas and where are we going to do it? And there was a local funeral home called Haran McConaughey here in Denver, and they were one of the most well-regarded funeral homes. And I said, that's where we're going to go. And so I went in and we planned the, the, the service and I noticed something, a little brochure for the Heartlight Center. Mm. And so I, I picked it up. I put it in my jacket pocket. And like a week later, I pulled it out and I was reading through it. And the mission of the Heartlight Center, which was started by Haran McConaughey as a separate nonprofit, was to serve the families that they served on the funeral home side by providing not individual counseling, but group grief work. Mm -hmm. So kind of segmented by the type of loss, so loss of a spouse, loss of a child, et cetera, et cetera. And so I thought, you know what, this is the perfect organization for me to bring child grief to. So I'm putting my banker businessman hat on when I want a deal, I go to the CEO of a company and That's say, can right. I have lunch with you? That's right. So I called John Haran and I said, I'd like to buy you lunch and share with you how I think we might be able to work together. And so we had lunch and I said, I will give you all the intellectual property and assets of childgrief.org if you guys will continue the legacy. And he said, I'll make you a deal. I'll take that if you replace me as chairman of Heartlight because he was ready to step down. And again, it was one of those moments that you couldn't have orchestrated, right? Yeah. And so I became the chairman of a much larger organization with a lot of different needs. A lot of things were taken off of my plate as kind of a solo panure running a small nonprofit. Yeah. Now I had a place with a building, with a staff, with a budget that was supported by the funeral home. And so I started attending the different groups. And in particular, when I would attend the loss of a spouse, the thing I kept hearing was, well, my wife handled all of our bills and, and our investments, and I don't even know how to log into our accounts. Or my husband handled all of that, and I don't even know what our household budget is. And so I started cataloging all of this, and I thought, okay, there's got to be a resource out there. So I did a search. There's a million and one books on grief. There's a bunch of books on state and probate law. But there really wasn't a roadmap for, yeah. okay, what do you do the moment somebody dies? That day, I spent in 2013, so I had been chair of the organization for a couple of years. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going to write a roadmap. And so nearly every Saturday for a year, I went to our local public library and I did an outline of, okay, what is it that, if I have my banker hat on, what is it that I need to communicate to people? And then I talked to my friends in investment management, and I talked to my friends that were attorneys, and I pulled all this information together and then created a ton of checklists and 
just sound advice and what do you do with social security and all the fears that people have. I just had a lady in my office, her husband passed away. And so we talked through like how she's going to go to social security and what questions to ask and so forth. And so I spent a year writing the first steps, a comprehensive guide to financial matters after a death. And I put it out there on Amazon and I think like five people bought it, but I gave away (laughs) hundreds and hundreds of copies that I paid for myself because it never was about like, we're going to get rich off of a book on that nobody wants to read. (laughs) Well, and no one wants to read it, but again, you and I know, because we talk to grievers all the time, part of what is really painful is when things don't have to be that painful. I just went through with my husband because, you know, death is on the mind and we had our financial planner and then our estate planner and we sat down and we talked about things. And then I was like, where are all the pin numbers for all the stuff? Where's the names of all the accounts? And what I was saying to him was, it's too bad that the estate guys don't actually do the planning at the same time. Like Megan, write down all the codes to all the things that your husband might need. We did it. But I have heard over and over what you're talking about, which is the burden of not feeling confident that you even know what's going on in your own house. Never mind the second part that I feel like isn't ours to fix, but absolutely should be fixed the way that you're treated by the bank, the way that when you're making a phone call to cancel a phone service, that every one of those companies does all of that terribly and adds to the burden of the griever. But I took a look at your book and boy, is it loaded with actual, factual, tangible, useful information for people who are going through this process. Yeah. And that was really the intent. I walk people down the path of, okay, here's everything that you're going to probably need over the next 6, 12, 18 months. Get a binder and get all of this stuff in there. And then here's why you're going to need it. Not just saying, well, you're going to need the IRA account information. Well, why? And who's the beneficiary? What is a beneficiary? And really trying to explain the why behind, you know, I take it for granted because I live in this world professionally. You know, I had a gal that was referred to me. She was a nurse in a medical practice that a friend of mine owns. And her husband died suddenly on a Sunday morning after church. And I went to her house with another colleague of mine. And she didn't know the logins to their bank accounts Yeah, and let alone what their monthly budget was. And she didn't know if they had life insurance. My other colleague, Tammy and I literally spent six hours at her kitchen table going through bank statements, trying to build like what their budget was. And I kept seeing this reoccurring line item for 43 bucks a month. And so we contacted her bank ask them to let us know where this ACH was going. And sure enough, it was going to a life insurance company and she had a million and a half dollars of life insurance that she wouldn't have otherwise known about. I'll just segue or on a tangent a little bit. I have a section in the book that talks about, I think it's like $70 million a year in life insurance policies that are not claimed. Absolutely. But there are resources where you can pay what I think is a modicum of money, 50, 70 bucks, and they will search all the life insurance companies to find out if there was a policy in your loved one's name. 
it's worth $50 um, for sure. It is. And having lived through that myself, getting that insurance six years after my folks passed away, it can be a real benefit. Right. And um, it's not just the tangible money, right? It's also the emotional component of, oh, they were thinking about this. They were thinking about taking care of me because when people are not prepared to die, which is most of us, mm-hmm. um, and there is a mess left behind, the person who is grieving and then carrying the burden of that mess is often feeling, why did they do this to me? Why couldn't they have been more prepared? Why couldn't they have been more thoughtful? And life insurance is one of those very concrete ways of saying, I don't want you to be left with a financial mess. Exactly. So I'm going to be looking out for you. So it's not just the, oh, thank God for the million dollars. It's also, and you thought about me in this right. way. You thought about what would happen and and protected against that, which from a, from the therapy standpoint, that kind of emotional support is so critical, particularly if you've lost a partner, because, you know, you want to think of that partner in their living life as being your partner. And also after they die as being your partner and leaving your spouse a mess that can't untangle is it can be prevented. And I say that, and I really would be hard pressed if my husband was hit by a truck tomorrow to tell you that I knew exactly. And I know way more than the average bear, but that I, that I knew how to program like our our Apple TV, like that. Yeah. Well, you know, there are those little things like I, in my personal life, I've taken care of these macro things. In fact, I just had to renew my, my benefits for next year at work. And I was eligible for an additional portion of life insurance based on my position. And I tell people, if you work for a company where you can buy a couple million dollars for like next to nothing, why would you not do that? That's one of the benefits of your company as much as a vacation day is. Oh yeah. But Uh, we're, we're so avoidant, right? I mean, this is the piece. This is the thing. Why do we not have these conversations in our marriage? But we talk about, are we going to get a new car? We don't have them because people don't want to talk about death. Again, I've got lots of soapboxes, but one of them just sort of is, we used to have more conversations about death when death happened in the home and happened Mm -hmm. in the immediate family nearby us. We used to have that, not in an anxious way, just more in an everyday way. And we really do kind of put it behind closed doors and we, and we almost like medicinalize it or, or act as though it's a problem instead of just an actual practical reality. I love hearing that you're, that you put this book out there and people are like, man, I want to read that. (laughs) Right. Like that makes sense. You know, I'm sure a publisher would have been like, listen, we don't do really well with the books about all the death. (laughs) But at the same time, what we're encouraging people is there's the looking at these sorts of resources when you're stunned and in grief. And then there's looking at these resources, knowing that one day you're going to need them. And that's the piece that I think is so proactively important. I mean, honestly, I looked at yours and was sort of like, oh, there's stuff in here that I haven't thought about. And my dad was the ultimate in organization, you know, pens and folders. And I mean, we found the instruction manual to a microwave from like 1983, right? Like just unbelievable. But there were still some really significant loose ends that he had not taken care of as he was dying. He died over the course of a year. And I know he didn't take care of those things because of his own reluctance around death. 
that it wasn't, you know, we, he had done those other things when it was just business and he was younger and healthier. Right. And then as he was in these moments, you know, we have our own emotional current that we find ourselves in. And there were some pieces where I was like, what do you mean? I'm talking to my siblings. I'm like, what do you mean? He didn't sign his medical paperwork. What are you talking about? He had cancer. Like he knew he was dying as much as we can do in the practical way, proactively, that's a real service to us because the emotions that drive so much of the other stuff are not logical and they're not predictable and we can't rely on ourselves in those moments. And I just think that's the truth of it. Yeah, I agree. Like you, I probably think about death a lot more (laughs) than the average bear just by virtue of the different groups I'm involved with. But I've now morphed the book into what I call more of a living book in terms of it being an online course. Yeah. So now people, they can see all the contents. Maybe they don't need to do chapter or module one immediate needs because they've already had the funeral and so forth, but they need to go to document gathering or they need to understand estate and probate law, or they need to understand what to do with bank accounts. So I've taken the material, which was static in the book, created kind of a multimedia presentation, which I can continually update now. And I've only had the course out chronically for a couple of months and the reception has been tremendous. I've got life. Thank you. I've got a life insurance company tomorrow that I'm meeting with that wants to look at how do they provide this to all of their life insurance agents. I've had some very interesting traction here in Colorado with medical examiners and coroners. Mm. I tried to think of who are the, who are the people that are at the forefront when somebody passes away? It's Mm going to be the medical examiner, a church or a house of worship and employers. And so if you think about it from an employer standpoint, I mean, I, over the course of the last 10 years, probably five times we've used my book at various institutions where I've been employed when somebody has passed away. And so mm. my my mission right now is really just to get the the word out that there is very inexpensive resource that, you know, has been built and time tested over the last decade with families and it has made a difference in people's lives. I mean, I think about the, the lady with the life insurance and where she would be today if she didn't know that there was a way to look for that. And so you touched on something else that I want to talk about real quick. You said you wouldn't know how to program the Apple TV. Yeah. Uh, I This past year, I facilitated a grief share at my church, which is a national grief program. Mm-hmm. And a couple of weekends ago, we had surviving the holidays. And my regular group, there's like three men and then everyone else is female. But in the surviving the holidays, I only really had widows show up. I didn't have any widowers. Uh, And so I was kind of going around the room listening to what people's challenges were. And one thing was, well, my husband was the one that hung the Christmas lights. Mm-hmm. And my wife does the inside of her house and she does a wonderful job and it's always beautiful, but it's always me and my boys hanging the lights on the so, ladders. Yeah. And it's so I'm a part of a, for lack of a better word, a fraternity. I live in Castle Rock, Colorado, and there's a group of dads. It's called the Dads of Castle Rock, and there's 1,100 of us. 
And oh we gosh. respond to it's everything from bad dad jokes on Facebook to when there's a tragedy in our community, how do we step up and how do we help single moms? You know, just, you know, what can we do to help out? Well, I put a challenge out there. I said, hey, dads, there's widows in our community that won't have Christmas lights this year because they've never had to put them up. And I got such a huge response. And this weekend, we're going to go out to a couple of different households and hang their lights. And people could see that like little things like that, even if you didn't lose somebody, but doing something like that in a community for people that are grieving will change their holidays. I promise you that. That's a beautiful story. It's really giving me chills. What it's reminding me of is how frustrating the concept of gratitude can be to people when they're in pain, like reading Oprah magazine and being like, oh, well, your life will be better if you practiced gratitude Mm. is really a difficult pill to swallow, right? I think gratitude is one of those things that's a little bit more like grace or peace. It's like you you are instilled with it. I don't know that you get to chase it, but I do think that acts of service can bring you closer to the edge of that moment. And that, look, when you're deep in grief and you are the griever, you don't get to be the person who is doing an act of service. But at some point down the line, our grief is something that we can carry and hold and we're not underneath it anymore. And so when I'm in those like funked out, I never see them coming but like funked out moments where I'm like, I sort of hate everybody. And I know this has, it's sort of grief related and I know it, but it's, I'm in a place of less than the only thing that ever works for me is to be expansive and offering. And Mm. it's, I'm, I'm not in a curious and creative place. So I don't, I'm kind of like clenching my jaw. Like I'm in a little bit of pain here. If someone could say to me, Hey, do you want to donate? Can you help? Will you show up? Will you give food? Yes, I will. Thank you so much. I want to be helpful in this moment because I know that's going to shift my energy and get me closer to that edge of where I feel apart and connected instead of separate and less than. And the idea that your dad group, the fact that there even is a dad group is so extraordinary to hear, but that they are, I imagine, pumped up to go do something that they know is going to be heartfelt. You know, look, it might still make these widows cry because you're still going to be reminding them that their husband is not here to do it, but they'll have their damn Christmas lights. That to me just feels like the best kind of grief expression and sort of returning back to the place of pain that we came from. I just love that story. I think it's going to be so fun. The irony is I hate putting up the Christmas lights. Oh my my God. (laughs) But here's the thing. Sometimes I'm willing to be more generous and do something for someone else that I would. I mean, I had a friend one time that was, she was deep in grief and I was like, what can I do? Here are the things I like to do. Here are the things I'm good at. And she was like, I really could use help cleaning up my garden and my yard. And I was like, look, I hire somebody to do that shit. I hate that work. But I will do it for you and I'll bring my kids and we'll come over and we'll rake because I really want to show up for you. So who knows? Maybe you will find that there's some camaraderie in hanging those Christmas lights that feel well. I will make sure that I get our lights hung Saturday morning before I go out and do anybody else's house. 
I could talk to you all day. This, everything about your story, which is such a hard story, has so much hope in it for us. The fact that you have found a place of purpose around sharing what you know and experienced in grief feels like such a big gift. And it feels to me like it's still evolving, which is really, again, I think when we think of grief as a lifelong process, the fact that the way in which we show up to serve with purpose, grief just reminding us that that's also a lifelong process. I'm going to link for everybody, all of Shane's, his bio and all of the organizations that he's connected to, but most importantly, this resource so that you can go online and use it and maybe use it in your organization. Is there a best way for people if they want to reach out to you? How do you like that to happen? Yeah, on my website is my email address and my phone number. I'm faster on email than phone because I do have a day job. But I do want to just a couple quick things. There will be a link for the Heartlight Center, which is the nonprofit I'm a part of. Every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Mountain Time, I host a free Zoom call for anybody in the world that wants to dial in. And you register for it on the Heartlight Center website and you can uh, pose questions to me or just show up to the call and pose questions. It is a group setting, so it can be one person or it could be 10. And even when it's 10 people, a widow in Rhode Island learns something from somebody in Washington State. And so I invite anybody that has questions to feel free to dial into that on Wednesday nights. And then... In terms of the online resource, it's $49 for individual use. I do have for organizations that want to have a kind of a subscription for all of their members. It just kind of varies on the size of the organization, but people can reach out to me through my website and get information on that. That's so great. I have appreciated this conversation exactly as much as I anticipated when I learned of your work. This has just been a complete delight. I hope we stay connected. I just would love to keep supporting your work. And I have a hunch like learning about what you're doing next with this. This has just been really, really delightful. I'm really grateful. Well, I appreciate that. And I'll tease you with the next resource that's coming out, hopefully in the spring, is when I wrote the book, there were like three social media sites. Now there's a hundred. And every single one of them has a different way to take down somebody's social profile or to terminate. And I don't know if you've ever experienced on Facebook or LinkedIn where somebody pops up and you know that they've passed away, but it can be kind of creepy or it can be joyous. I have my grandmother memorialized on Facebook. And so I still see things of pictures of she and I, but that's, that's the next resource coming out is how to handle all of those things. Oh my God. Again, that's something that comes up all the time is, you know, those dormant accounts or how, what, how do we handle those? So I will look forward to learning more about those. 